This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news. We begin with breaking news, of course. This is an ABC News special report. And we have a decision just breaking from the Supreme Court. On the U.S. Supreme Court. Hey, we're coming on the air with breaking news. The Supreme Court has just rejected a challenge. Good to the morning. Court. We're coming on the air with breaking news from the Supreme Court at this hour. Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Seidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, October 10th, 2022, and we are continuing our new season on the Supreme Court. That's right. Last week, we talked about the moment in which a president nominates a judge to the Supreme Court. And today we're going to continue in that conversation to the next step, which is in the Senate, where they have to confirm said judge. Yep. The confirmation process. So there's a lot of interesting, interesting things to discuss here. So let's dive straight into it, Naomi. Yeah. So the first piece that we wanted to talk about is just the confirmation process process, <laughs> details, like where is the context of this? When the Supreme Court coverage is high, like it is during the nomination and confirmation process, why can't news organizations help their viewers understand exactly what is happening? If you're a longtime listener of Polylog, you'll remember that we often praised Chuck Todd for his notorious or... <laughs> extremely helpful explainers or timeline breakdowns before a segment block. Welcome back. Suspicion of government and openness to conspiracy theories have long been features of American politics. Recently, QAnon, a blanket conspiracy theory that's part politics, part religion, and completely irrational, has spread like a virus from the fringes of the internet to the political mainstream. The QAnon phenomenon is also very pro-Trump, and its followers include at least one newly elected member of Congress. As we first reported on Meet the Press Reports, which is on NBC News Now and Peacock, the issue for the GOP is will it distance itself from this movement or welcome the enthusiasm of its support? Do you believe there's a ring of high-profile politicians who are kidnapping and sacrificing children? I do believe that. QAnon, once a fringe phenomenon, is now exploding online. A symptom of how susceptible America is to a conspiracy theory, supercharged by the power of social media. Particularly when it came to, like, all the Trump investigations. Or, like, sometimes it was a big legislative lift, yeah. right? That was He also gave explainers on those, too. And I just feel like we don't get those same type of explainers about the confirmation process to help people understand, you know, how the confirmation is different than the nomination or what's happening in the Senate Judiciary Committee versus when it goes to the full Senate. America could use a Chuck Todd explainer on this. Absolutely. But instead, I think we're going to get a Naomi Soto explainer on this. <laughs> no, well, not necessarily. Just I wanted to reiterate that these are distinct steps that are rarely fully explained. And it's just assumed that people know how they're different or know why they matter. There's a couple examples kind of most recently that I thought were interesting or notable or enraging. First, I would just love some explainers of the work itself it takes to confirm a judge. For each nomination, we should 
see explainers that talk about the process of choosing, vetting, and confirming that said judge. What is typical? What Who is usually involved? What is the role of the White House, of Senate leadership, of the judiciary, outside stakeholders? Each play a crucial role, some more than others, depending on the administration, but it can really vary. And we rarely have the understanding as to how things are changing within a given nomination and confirmation. So like understanding how one confirmation process or nominee is different from others? Right. Like we don't even know what's typical. So when something is atypical, we it's hard to be, it's hard to see that flag. Right. I thought one example that I thought was really interesting was Politico had two really excellent profiles in April when former Alabama Senator Doug Jones was selected to be the so-called Sherpa for Katanji Jackson. The article's headline, Jackson Confirmation Battle Rejuvenates Doug Jones. It was written by Marianne Levine and Burgess Everett, and it it came out on April 5th of this year. Now, Sherpas are people from the Himalayan region who help lead foreigners who are fitness enthusiasts essentially not die (laughs) on potentially deadly summits (laughs) in their fitness excursions right in the senate world during a confirmation sherpas help the nominee through the process itself so going to meetings with them doing prep and these um, aren't people from the himalayan region. they are not Himal. yeah they're not from the himalayas <laughs> doug jones That'd be amazing is, if the himalayan people <laughs> like we got this <laughs> were known for those two qualities they could help people it's like you guys are both crazy <laughs> and work in senate <laughs> nominations What I most appreciated about the political articles in comparison to the New York Times and the Washington Post articles that were more point blank, the political articles described why Jones was ideal for the role to begin with. It explained that the selection made sense given Jones's civil rights background and how he's also on the shortlist for potential cabinet roles within the Biden administration and of his connections with the Biden administration. The article also states how The experience that Jones lacked in comparison to former Senator John Kyle of Arizona, who guided Justice Brett Kavanaugh and former Senator Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire, who guided now Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. These articles also talked about how these former senators are often people who were on the Senate judiciary themselves. And so they experienced other confirmation process so they can help guide you better. Right. And so all these little details of kind of who <laughs> who the Sherpa is and what their role is, is really, really interesting. Yes. And in looking at these articles for Doug Jones specifically, it was interesting because he He is a former senator, but he was only a senator for three years. And so he has this, you know, but he's very well liked, both especially with Democrats. But he has pretty warm relationships with lots of Republicans in the Senate as well. And so just like a very interesting dynamic and actually kind of gave that color and not just be like, Doug Jones is doing this, which I found was kind of the tone of a lot of the other articles that I saw. Right. They didn't provide that context. Right, kind of the role and the work that they're doing, right? Like the actual work of confirming a judge. Yeah, this is just fascinating because most people, I don't think, are considering who is guiding this legis- this process, I should say. It's not, a legis- it's not legislation, it's a person through the Senate, through Congress. And it made me actually think of another example from history, and this was... <laughs> 
I'm, I'm a little sad we didn't decide of like a little ding every time you're we like and history and then it was like some chime some brendan history supreme court chime yeah so so this actually reminds me of another instance from supreme court history and that is fdr's court packing plan where he was going to increase the number of justices from nine up to a total of potentially i think it was 17 and he had democratic majorities in both houses of congress so it was expected this would actually pass i propose that hereafter when a judge reaches the age of 70 a new and younger judge shall be added to the court automatically in this way, I propose to enforce a sound public policy by law. Instead of leaving the composition of our federal courts, including the highest, to be determined by chance or the personal decision of individuals. If such a law as I propose is regarded as establishing a new precedent, is it not a most desirable precedent? Like all lawyers, like all Americans, I regret the necessity of this controversy. But the welfare of the United States, and indeed of the Constitution itself, is what we all must think about first. Our difficulty with the court today rises not from the court as an institution, but from human beings within it. But we cannot yield our constitutional destiny to the personal judgment of a few men who, being fearful of the future, would deny us the necessary means of dealing with the present. This plan of mine is no attack on the court. It seeks to restore the court to its rightful and historic place in our system of constitutional government and to have it resume its high task of building anew on the Constitution, a system of living law. But there were key people who were the Sherpas moving this legislation through the process, and the key person in particular in the Senate was the Senate Majority Leader, Joe Robinson, Senator Joe Robinson. And even though the plan was kind of watered down and there were lots of problems, as we discussed in our previous discussion of the court packing plan, there was actually a moment where the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court called into question FDR's need to even have this plan because FDR originally couched it as, we need to pack the court because all these old people can't keep up with the work and they're behind right, in their I work. Right, I remember right? you mentioning that. Mm -hmm. But the Chief Justice, who was Charles Evans Hughes at the time, remember that name, it'll come up in my section later, the Chief Justice, Charles Evans Hughes, wrote a letter saying, we're not behind in our work at all. We're totally fine. So there's no need for this. <laughs> um, but they managed to change the bill and adjust it and get it to a place where it looked like it was going to actually pass. And there were, Robinson told the administration in the middle of June that he had 45 votes that were yes, 39 votes that were no, and there were just 12 who were uncertain. So it seemed like it was a lock, but something happened. It was, this was all happening in the middle of the summer. And during some of this debate, Robinson, who was overweight and had a heart condition, found himself bothered by the heat. He kept complaining about the heat. And one day he went home to rest 
and he never returned. He died. From the heat? Did he have a heart attack? He had a heart attack. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Like, what a hot summer. Yeah. And with Robinson dead, Robinson, who had, like, cajoled people into voting for this legislation, just everything fell apart after that. And the court packing plan never went into effect. But it was so close. Well, proponents of court packing now lean on that as saying, like, it was a very real possibility. Right. Oh, absolutely. But clearly, it's like who you choose to lead something you want through the Senate or through Congress is extremely critical. Could have changed, could change history. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's interesting thinking about like, and we're going to talk a little bit more later about leadership and, and kind of how we talk about who's doing that work. But it's just so often like... Those juicy details are interesting and people, I think, would be more interested in learning about it than we give them credit. But I think for the media, it requires knowledge beyond what's happening now, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just a straight reporting of like, this is what, you know, who was selected, which, like I said, there were articles that presented the Doug Jones selection in that way. And these articles were stood out to me because it gave that context of his predecessors. It gave that context of his own history. Right. And, you know, his limits and kind of his also like personal demeanor and how much that mattered and all of that context. And that is not something you are able to accomplish with like a deadline in four hours. Yeah. And it's like, how can you know, just for anything that you're reporting on, how can you know whether... It's good or bad if you don't know the context, if you don't, you know. Right. It's, it reminds me of like, for example, a job interview, right? If you do a job interview today for a candidate to see if they're any good, and then you're asked how to go, and you're like, well, it was okay by itself, you might say, yeah, that person could probably do the job. But if you've already had two or three interviews, and you know how those went, You can say, oh, well, if those were amazing, then this one was not that good. This is bad, you know. But if those were terrible candidates, then you can say this one that on its face is just okay. Well, in the context of those two is amazing, right? The two that didn't go well. Right. But you have to know the history and the context to understand what's in front of you, whether whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's just mediocre. Like, you can't really know unless you know the previous context. And so much of our journalism isn't telling us that. Yeah, and that's a perfect segue to my next example. Because in thinking about the Supreme Court coverage, we're really talking about the coverage of the interviews, like in your examples, the coverage of the interviews themselves, the coverage of the confirmation hearings. And, yeah, what happened today. Right? right. And if we don't have that context, when steps are skipped or corners are cut, we don't know what that means in terms of the work that was skipped or things that were deprioritized. Exactly. A good example of this is the extremely expedited confirmation of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So for a little bit of history, a little bit of context, since 1975, it has taken on average two months from when a president nominates a judge to the full Senate confirmation. Justice Coney Barrett did it in less than that time in 27 days. And then if we look at the nine justices on the court right now, the average is actually 72 days. And again, President Trump and Mitch McConnell had Amy Coney Barrett confirmed in 27 days. 
Now, if you're a conservative, maybe you think that's an impressive accomplishment. If you are a progressive, maybe you think that the Supreme Court seat was stolen. And to be honest, we've seen both of those coverage. Like Mitch McConnell, like gloating with pride and Senate Democrats, like screaming at any camera that will let them. I personally am more interested in deeper coverage beyond the political theater about what the expedited schedule meant in terms of the Senate's due diligence. Those data points are super interesting. And actually, I will have a little bit to say about that in my section as well. So it's pretty, pretty cool that we're both talking about this. Yeah, I think a lot of the coverage was more like, wow, this is crazy. It's so fast. But we didn't hear enough about the work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are three stages of the Senate's advice and consent work that is done by the Senate Judiciary. One, a pre-hearing investigative stage. Then two, the public hearings. And then three, a committee decision on what recommendation to make to the full Senate. Now, during the pre-hearing investigative stage, the nominee sends a huge, extremely detailed questionnaire to the Senate Judiciary. It includes biographical information, professional and financial disclosure information. On top of that, the committee does their own investigation of the nominee and the FBI investigates the nominee and provides the committee with confidential reports related to what they found. Also during this time, the American Bar Association evaluates the qualifications and provides a rating of one of three options, well-qualified, qualified, or not qualified. And it's also during this time that the nominee themselves, they're taking meetings with senators, most importantly, people who are on the Judiciary Committee, but also with just senators who are eventually going to have to vote for them at the end. Now, this questionnaire is extremely long, can easily be over 100 pages. It has a lot of their history, their personal relationships, and it needs to be analyzed and vetted by the committee. By choosing to confirm Justice, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett, in half the time they usually do, it is simply not possible to fully analyze her jurisprudence before confirming her to a lifetime appointment. Now, you could probably make similar comparisons to the incomplete vetting of Brett Kavanaugh on kind of like the personal side. My analysis of Justice Amy Coney Barrett is really looking at her jurisprudence and how much they were able to properly analyze it. But the same could be said for Brett Kavanaugh for his personal accusations. There's simply, (laughs) in our current coverage, there's simply too much focus on the political game and so much less on the process investigations by legal experts and law enforcement that is just not valued and not talked about. Yeah, again, it's like we said last week, it's just relying on the political game that we're all plugged into and we all know and we all follow and a game that feels like it's almost mostly played by just statements. So this person said this, this person said that. Yeah, it's boring. Rather than like the facts of the case and the process and the work and the documents, you know, the real documents, the data, the the reality of what's happening, not just what someone was quoted. You know, the Republicans said this, the Democrats said that. So I want to pick up on one thing you said there, Naomi, and that's about the American Bar Association evaluation of these candidates. This reminds me of a great story that came out in The Brethren, that book I read about the Supreme Court by Bob Woodward and Craig Armstrong. And there was an interesting situation in the 70s when there were actually two justices that were kind of being confirmed around the same time. And the two nominees were William Rehnquist 
and Lewis Powell. And Powell had excellent credentials. Rehnquist, however, was a little a little different. And I just want to read a little bit of, uh, of, of what's written here in The Brethren. So at that time, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman was James Eastland, a conservative who, if you remember, was ended up being a pretty notorious racist. But Eastland at that time was frustrated that friends of Lewis Powell were trying to separate Rehnquist's appointment from Powell's appointment in the minds of everyone, including the American Bar Association. And that Powell's supporters, even though both Powell and Rehnquist were nominated by Nixon around the same time, Powell's supporters had been, in Eastland's estimate, kind of offensive to Rehnquist. They were trying to say that Rehnquist was a lowbrow and not up to the standards of the Supreme Court. And so when Eastland found out that the American Bar Association was not going to give Rehnquist a favorable recommendation, he decided to push back. And here's what he did. He told the ABA committee that if it didn't approve Rehnquist, quote, he would subpoena each of the 12 members to testify about their reasons under oath. Subpoenas were typed, travel plans prepared, staff members were ready to fan out across the country. And ultimately, the ABA voted to give the highest possible rating to Rehnquist and Powell. So people who never expected to have to defend their vote in (laughs) sworn testimony were going to be forced to. Yeah. (laughs) Again, the political games, everybody. (laughs) Isn't it crazy? And ultimately, Rehnquist went on to become... Chief Justice. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, who... John Roberts clerked for and is now chief justice. You know, John Roberts is chief justice. But if Eastland hadn't pulled this stunt, Rehnquist could have gotten not the highest favorable and maybe he would have been swapped out for someone else. And we literally might not have John Roberts on the court right now. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I just think overall, like I would love to see more explicit descriptions of the deliverables that are shared. Right. Like, what are the reports that are made within the Senate? Like, I get it if we can't even see it, but can we can they describe to us what is being done, what that vetting looks like, how many people work on it, how it's shared among the committee? You know, do they then share it to non-committee members if there's someone who's reticent to vote for the person that they've given a recommendation to? Like, it's just... This is just like the work itself. I'm not even talking about like sharing of that work or sharing it with the public even. It's just like it's all kept on a giant black box and we're supposed to then watch these confirmation hearings, which now are like a complete joke oftentimes. (laughs) And the more serious work does not get true coverage. Well, and, and you're absolutely right. And another thing to think about when we're thinking about these nomination processes, these confirmations and the vetting, is that consider that nowadays everyone who runs for president is literally running for that job in public view for about two years. I mean, let's be honest, yeah. right? It's about two years. And that is for somebody to hold a job for a four-year term. Correct. These are people on the Supreme Court who are going to hold a lifetime on the court. Like, they're going to hold that job for a lifetime. So it might behoove 
us or the Judiciary Committee that is actually making the selection alongside the Senate to spend maybe a little more time than 27 days thinking about that person. Yeah, I mean, so I worked in recruiting for many, many years. And I could tell you for projects of like, Six months to 12 months, it was a longer vetting process than 27 <laughs> days sometimes. So it's, it's, it's just wild. <laughs> wild hiring practices, let me yes. tell you. Yes. But we have a lot to say about the Judiciary Committee, which plays such a vital role in the confirmation process. Brendan, what stood out to you about the Judiciary? Well, I wanted to go, uh, you know, a little wider than just the judiciary here, but, you know, talking about this confirmation process and how the media covers it. And first, I want to start out by prefacing and saying a lot of the data and information that I'm going to share from this section, not all of it, but a lot of it, leans on an excellent paper by Richard Davis from BYU, published by the Anadi International Institute for the Sociology of Law. So I want to give that, that piece some credit where credit is due. So nominations these days are different than they were for most of the court's history. That's something to consider when we think about how the media covers these nominations. Now, you talked about, for example, how the average confirmation process between 1975 and 2020 was something like 72 days, I think you had it? Well, from 1975, it was a little over two months. Yeah. The average of the last of the nine justices currently on the court is 72 days. Right. And the number I had seen between 75 and 2020, the average was 68 days. That must be what you're saying, the two months. Sure. Yeah. Um, But confirmations before 1975, which is for most of the court's history, were way shorter than that 68 days or 72 days. The average confirmation between 1910 and 1967 was just 20 three days, actually less than what we're talking about here with Amy Coney Barrett. That's... Isn't that crazy? Extreme. I mean, I think my milk lasts longer than that. <laughs> yeah. And here's another example. Like, there were actually lots of examples of nominations that were even shorter. For example, President William Howard Taft's nomination of Charles Evans Hughes in 1910, who we were just talking about, Charles Evans Hughes, if you remember, that nomination was just a week long one week. And back in these early days, you know, before 1975, the Judiciary Committee didn't actually have much of a role. For example, in that 1910... So interesting. Yeah, in that 1910 nomination, there was no appearance that Charles Evans Hughes had before the Judiciary Committee at all. And the confirmation vote itself in the full Senate was conducted in a five-minute closed session. They called them executive sessions. They were closed to the public. And it was five minutes long. Absolute joke. Yeah. And back in that time before, you know, 1970, 1960, a lot of the opposing parties, like in the Senate, they kind of let the president nominate whoever the president wanted. As long as the nominee seemed like they were on their on the surface like qualified and it wasn't like somebody's brother or whatever, like as long as it wasn't just out of the woodwork, they would just say, well, that's the president's prerogative. Let them do it. So is that Charles Evans Hughes nomination? So Charles Evans Hughes in 1910 was a well-known Republican politician being nominated by a Republican president. So 
How well known was he? At that time, he was still the Republican governor of New York. And even though there were 32 Democratic senators, every single Democrat voted for Hughes' nomination. It was unanimous. And I can't underscore this enough. Charles Evans Hughes was so Republican that six years after he was appointed to the Supreme Court, he resigned from the Supreme Court so that he could run for president. That's crazy. And he got the Republican nomination for president. He actually got the nomination, accepted the nomination, while he was still a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) That's so insane. Yeah. He had such a strong early showing that he, now he ran against Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, and he had such a strong early showing in the election that Wilson almost conceded the election to him. Now, Hughes would later serve as Secretary of State to one Republican president, and then he returned to the Supreme Court as Chief Justice at the behest of another Republican president in 1930. And therefore... Literally took a political break. Yes. And therefore, he was the Chief Justice when FDR was trying to pack the court. And he's like, no, 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 we're classy here. Yeah, we get our work done. Thank you very much. (laughs) Isn't that insane? But again unanimous confirmation seems like a stellar guy yeah no ethical violations <laughs> none so we have to ask ourselves what changed how did nominations become so different well watergate had a huge huge impact on all this watergate fundamentally changed the relationship between congress and the presidency So Congress began asserting itself more and not deferring to the president's power, including in these nominations. The other thing that changed in a huge way was congressional hearings began to be not only open, but broadcast live on television. So up until the mid-70s, most congressional hearings were closed. There was there were no cameras allowed in those hearings. It was like a Supreme Court oral history. Yeah, exactly. But and now there was, you know, there were some famous examples of when hearings were live. For example, the Army McCarthy hearings, communist witch hunt that was happening back in the 1950s. But until the 1970s, there weren't a lot of open door policies, let's broadcast everything. But once they started to do that, particularly in the 80s with C-SPAN, every committee wanted to be broadcast all the time. And committees would actually compete with each other to get the coverage. And so they would end up inviting like famous people to sit before their committees so that they would like get the coverage and the senators could get the, the airtime and the face time. So that made the Judiciary Committee kind of come alive and get more interested and engaged in this process. And both of these things, Congress not being so deferential to the presidency and these committees wanting to get airtime, meant that the nomination process started to get drawn out. And the longer the nomination process got drawn out, the more impact media could have on it and the more coverage media could have of it. And there's actually an interesting example back in the 1930s. The nomination of Hugo Black was contested pretty vehemently in a few major newspaper editorial pages. And yet the nomination ended up happening so quickly that there was not time for any opposition forces to like organize. And Hugo Black was put on the court before the media later learned that he had some connections to the KKK. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. 
So nowadays, with longer nominations, you end up getting more coverage, not surprisingly. So Elena Kagan, for example, her nomination generated, according to one study, 237 articles, blogs, and editorials in just the nation's three top newspapers. And with more coverage and with a more politically engaged process, we also get fewer unanimous decisions, right? People are, these senators are not just deferring to the president. And even when the nominee seems not that controversial, for example, Elena Kagan, there's lots of people who vote against her. So Kagan's nomination, an analysis of the coverage that looked across print, TV, and cable by the Center for Media and Public Affairs found that 75% of her coverage was positive, including of all the Republicans quoted in that coverage, 40% of them were positive of Kagan, and yet there were 37 no votes. Most Republicans in the Senate still voted against her. So we get a lot more coverage, and we get a lot more contentious votes these days than we did in the past. Which, if you think about it, based off of kind of this analysis that you're sharing, but in the surface interpretation is the longer you have the confirmation hearings take, the more coverage there is and the more contentious it is and the more partisan the vote's going to be. But if we start with the coverage itself, focusing so much on the political games rather than the work of the vetting, like it could change that whole timeline. Yeah. Absolutely right. All of those assumptions are based off of the motive, like the political motivations to determine what your coverage is going to be. But if the coverage is about the work, the jurisprudence, the vetting, I'm it, it just that's why sometimes I get like a little frustrated when we like do some of these lookbacks because it assumes that the coverage is done well to begin with, and it clearly is not. No, you're totally, totally right about that. Um, One additional point that's worth noting about these, the coverage that takes place, is the role of political polling. And we don't talk a lot about that necessarily when we're talking about the coverage, but political polling started to become a major factor in the conversations around these nominees. And an assumption that, you know, senators should maybe not vote in a way that would anger their base, right? Their political base. And nowadays, in recent history, their average is like three to four major political polls by Gallup alone on each nominee throughout the process these days. And the public's perceptions of a nominee can shape how senators vote, regardless of what party they're in or other factors that are that are on their mind. And that feeds, of course, into the coverage as well, or is fed by it, right? So, Naomi, we've talked a lot about how this process works. We've talked a little bit about how it defers from one nominee to the next, or it defers from our time in history versus other times in history. What do you think is the right balance in terms of how long the process is, as well as how the media covers that process and informs the public of of what these nominees are, are all about? I mean, I don't know if I have a number of days that I think it should take or is unacceptable if it's under X amount of days. But I I just want to know about the impact of the work, the impact of the vetting. And 
and help me understand like what is happening before me. You know, some <laughs> some examples, there were articles about Senator Dianne Feinstein, who up until, you know, not too long ago was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But there was rumors and stories coming out saying that Democrats didn't have faith in her to lead a confirmation process. Right. Like, which is a pretty big deal for those stories to come out to begin with. And that then Senator Dick Durbin was chosen. He was, you know, the next leading Democrat on on the committee to chair specifically for Katanji Brown Jackson's nomination. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, there's all these dynamics with Senator Feinstein, you know, a new chair coming in when it's like not typically the time that a new chair would come in. Right. And then like the work of what the chair does. Right. And I was like, I wonder what kind of like stories I could find. And I found this article that Nina Totenberg did about Dick Durbin leading this work. Next week, confirmation hearings begin on the Supreme Court nomination of Katanji Brown-Jackson. And there's going to be a new face in the center chair. Presiding will be Illinois Democrat Dick Durbin. Though he has served in the House and the Senate for a total of 39 years, his influence has largely been behind the scenes until now. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has his profile. Durbin was raised in the working-class city of East St. Louis, Illinois, where neighborhoods were either white or black. On the white side of town, the population was largely Catholic immigrants like his mother, who immigrated as a child from Lithuania. Both his parents had only an eighth-grade education, and both worked for the railroad, his mother in the office and his father as a night watchman, who worked his way up to a chief clerk's position. Church was kind of the center of my life. It was not only my school, but it's where I went to play sports and, you know, dances and everything else kind of focused on the Catholic side of life in East St. Louis. That came to a grinding halt when his father died. He was in the hospital for 100 days before he passed away. And there I was, a 14-year-old kid standing by his bed, seeing this man gasping for air at age 53, two packs of camels a day. His father's death led to what decades later Durbin calls his proudest accomplishment, leading the fight against tobacco. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like, she's been covering the Supreme Court for so long. She might have some really interesting things to say. And it was like a fluff article about Senator Dick Durbin and like his personal history and like how he got to the Senate and like... Like a little mini bio? It was like a mini bio. And I'm just like, it was not helpful it was like talking about his like dad's like tobacco his like cancer from tobacco and why dick durbin has always been like anti-tobacco and like his other big fights his so it was like who he is sort yeah of. exactly well it was a bio puff piece on on dick durbin and i was just like really this is this is like the opportunity to like understand like these changing dynamics right before some confirmation hearings and like this is the piece about the chair like i was just so frustrated and it was just like such a prime example of like there are people in power who are doing good bad i don't know doing work and it the coverage isn't always focused on it so not focused on the work itself focus on the work itself and like that for me is what i'm looking for that the coverage help people who aren't in that space, who are not in D.C., who are not lawyers, understand what is happening, not just like the political shenanigans. 
And maybe that happens really fast. Maybe the Senate suddenly becomes very efficient, uh-huh. right? And they're able to do that in 45 days or, you know, f- 42 days. And you're like, wow, good job. Like, But not five-minute closed-door sessions. Yeah, probably not <laughs> that fast. You know, so I th- that's why I don't want to say, like, give it num- a minimum number of days. But if we had an idea of, like, what deliverables are done at minimum for each confirmation... Then when those deliverables are skipped, like, it's like, oh, well, you just didn't do that work. Okay. I understand that now. There's there's nothing like that that we see. Yeah. For me, what I feel like is missing is what makes a good justice, right? This is a job interview. So we should know whether the person who is being nominated for the job can do the job and do the job well and is the best person for doing that job right now among the options. Once one is nominated, we should be talking more about how she might serve as a justice, you know, understanding who she is and how she might make decisions and how she might influence the court. And we're going to talk maybe a little more about that in future episodes. But that's the type of coverage that I would love to see more of, rather than just, as you say, puff pieces about the chair. Absolutely. So it actually sounds very similar to to what we were saying in previous episodes, which is the coverage shouldn't be all about the politics, even though this is a political process we're talking about here. But when we do talk about the politics, let's actually talk about the politics. What are the deals being made in the background? And who are the actual players? And where where is this process actually going? And what's the context around this process versus previous processes, rather than just Republicans said this, Democrats said that, right? Rather than just reprinting what feels like, not necessarily gossip, but just commentary, right? The different the different levels of commentary. Right, that's a good distinction. Yeah, it's almost like very similar to what you'd see on a cable news show where it's like Crossfire or something, right? Or a panel where you've got the Republicans <laughs> You're saying You're showing this. your millennial stripes talking about yeah. Crossfire. Welcome back to Crossfire. As both of our loyal viewers, of course, know, our show is all about left versus white, black versus white, paper versus plastic, Red Sox against the Yankees. That's why every day we have two guests with their own unique perspective on the news. But today, Crossfire is very different. But it's like where the Republican, you know, person says this and the Democratic person says that. The only difference here is these people actually have power rather than just being consultants or talking heads, right? Absolutely. So all that to say, it's not just when we're looking at the Supreme Court, whenever the branch, other branches of government are making decisions about the Supreme Court or interacting with the Supreme Court in any way, the coverage we find is also lacking. I wish I could find like a happier note. (laughs) Yes, that's quite a way to end the episode. But it just goes to show like, when people have apathy, when people don't understand what's happening, yes, there's a reason for that. People don't have time to understand the nuance of really complicated things when they're not presented very clearly. Like people are busy with their jobs, with their families, with whatever they have going on in their life. And this <laughs> the stuff we're talking about is just not very accessible. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like you're sitting in yeah, this actually happened to me once but you're sitting in your 
class, right, at school, it, let's say you're in college, there's a syllabus in front of you, and the professor's like, you know what? Okay, here, okay, I'm going to just tell this little anecdote. So I took a summer class. Summer classes are usually great because they you're not in them quite as long as you are, you know, during a n- normal semester. But as a result, my professor said, okay, everyone, take a look at your syllabus. This is the syllabus you have in your hands, and it's like, you know, 15 pages. And he's like, take the last five pages of that syllabus and tear it out. We're not going to have time to get to that because this is a shorter, you know, accelerated summer class program. And I was like, great. And that makes sense, right? You, if you're going to pull out, if you have limited time, you pull things out at the end. But what it feels like reporters are doing is they're saying, look, everyone, we know you don't have time to focus on the Supreme Court and learn everything and know everything. So we're going to just tear out the first five pages and assume you know all this And we're not going to explain the process to you at all. And we're just going to go race straight to the end. And we're not going to also give you any context for what happened in the past, because probably you know that anyway. And then expect people to, like, get a lot from the coverage. Absolutely. When you get people, like, the crumbs of a meal, you can't expect them to compliment you. (laughs) Or to compliment the chef. (laughs) Right. Like, don't, don't tear out the context don't tear out the introduction because then no one knows what the hell is going on, right? Absolutely. Well, that was us being cheery. <laughs> um, <laughs> catch us next week when we try to bring that a little bit earlier in the episode. Yeah, next week when we're talking about accountability, which will be really cheery because everyone's so accountable. And there's so and, much examples of good journalism on and, this, guys. And, and, so, and so, so much. so many ethical decisions being made by the Supreme Court. They're just a paragon of... High values yes. and high standards. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe. <laughs> if you have any thoughts about today's episode, you're welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Beastidle, and you can tweet at the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week. Bye. Bye.